Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my always amazing co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Ea. I've got to say, I'm really looking forward to our conversation with today's guest, Roberto Abreu. We are just cranking right along, Lisette. This is episode 15. I know, right? I feel like today's episode is going to be a really good one, too. All right, folks, welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. What's going on, Lisa? What's going on with you? So the last time we talked, I think I mentioned to you, we were looking at houses. We put an offer in on house. It's exciting. All right, congratulations. But now that, you know, ledge session is over, we're also prepping for recess and like advocacy that has to happen during that time before ledge se- session happens in January. So it's like, it's like happy things. And then anti-trans legislation always looming, even though we have a democratic governor, you know how progressives are moving more towards being all right with transphobia. So yeah. we can't ever let down. Right. Yeah. So, so it's just like once the ledge session ends, Instead of it being an opportunity for you to like catch your breath and take a break, you are right on the heels of preparing for the next legislative session. Because if you don't do all the pre-work, then you're going to be behind. And the information that you need to get in front of the people who need to start like learning a little bit of something is going to be lost to you. Yep, exactly. So it just feels like a never ending wheel of hell. I get it. (laughs) And let's see. Um, It was real hot. It was 112 degrees this weekend. Ugh. Ugh. And so we visited family in Phoenix, which was hotter. But we went to the water park, and that salt water was good for the soul. Jose got a horrible, weird suntan burn thing happening. (laughs) He fell asleep in an inner tube. Oh, my God. I have to tell you this story. He fell asleep in an inner tube, but, like, half in, half out. And all of a sudden, I see him scrambling, like, but he had fallen asleep and slipped in the water. Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> and so his sunburn is like on his arms, like like right <laughs> up, like arm shoulder area where his arms were sticking out in the inner tube while he napped. <laughs> I need pictures. I need pictures. I told him to make it a painting, like these little these little hands just hanging out of a yellow inner tube in the water. Oh, that's hysterical. Um, but I hope he's okay. He's fine. He's, he didn't drown. I was like, imagine <laughs> if that would have been your way out. <laughs> so that was our weekend. Just trying to stay cool in this crazy ass heat. Dude. So I know it. insane. Like the literally. And did you see, I mean, we're going to talk about topics, but we're not going to talk about this topic, but I saw on uh, BBC news, my sister sent it to me that like, all of these fish on the Texas coast, just like dead fish floated onto the shore because the ocean is too hot to create oxygen. The ocean is too hot. I was reading something in, I think it was Time Magazine today about like the earth has reached a tipping point and it's reaching or has reached the tipping point faster than scientists, scientists predicted. And so by like 2100, by the year 2100, the ocean's currents will have slowed so much that the ability to move and create climate will have come to an end and we will be 
entering another ice age. Like this is how dire the situation is. And I'm thinking 2100, that's like 77 years from now, I'll be dead. I won't even have to worry about it. But I'm thinking, will my kids still be here? No, Daniel will still be here. You Damn. feel me? And so I was just like, yo, just, just, you know, have a plan. Like literally, Nicole and I are looking at bunkers. We're looking at bunkers, not for ourselves, for our children, so that the bunkers will be what we bequeath them such that when the earth starts to burn or nuclear holocaust occurs or the the air quality is so diminished that you cannot live above ground you have some below ground you know subterranean housing with stockpiles of food and air filtration and waste management and hydroponics such that you can continue to stay and i'm thinking like that is so dystopian and and so fatalistic but it's also doomsday prepping because you can't assume that these uber rich fucks who don't give a fuck about this country are going to do anything to safeguard the environment versus continue to aggrandize wealth by things like burning fossil fuels, things like eroding, you know, the, the deforestation, things like polluting the waters, like any of those things that we should stop doing, these rich fucks aren't going to do because it doesn't make their shareholders or themselves wealthier so why do it who cares about the minions who cares about the poor unwashed masses i can go to mars i can fly away and i'll be fine i don't have to worry about it so i have to share this random story with you but one time a fam like their family friend um when obama won they were like our church blah 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 they were like crazy christians and they were like obama it says in the bible that you know, blah, 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 like some racist shit about like Obama was going to bring the rapture. And I was like, that's just racist, right? Like I was very upset about it. And so clearly, you know, we're not really friends anymore. But anyway, needless to say, you know, whatever. So um, I think it's really funny that that's like the go to like racist shit, like they're always making up stories about the rapture when really their greed and hate is literally killing the earth. Literally. And setting us all up for like doom. Literally. Like pandemic, fucking fire in the sky with all, like red all dust the things. clouds. All the things, Lisette. Like literally all the things. Oceans Famine. can't survive. Oceans aflame. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the sky burning. No wonder, like all the things. No wonder the orcas are like, y'all are out. Yo, dead ass. They're like, you know what? We're not going to let you swim our oceans anymore. We're going to mm -hmm. take you and all your catamarans are going down. You can better burn can swim on land alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, sorry. We went on a rant. Tell me what's going on with you. All right. So um, what's up with me? What's up with me? Oh, my leg tattoo. So I've been working on two leg sleeves. I have my left leg done a big, uh, like traditional, uh, Japanese dragon, four claw dragon, pearls, moons, the whole nine on the left leg. On the right leg, I have a tiger, you know, reaching down towards like the like the water coming out of a jungle, coming down from the mountain. So I've gotten the tiger. I've gotten some of the waves. I've gotten some of the banana leaves and uh, foliage, but I need the mountain and the sun and the upper scene. And so uh, last week, I think it's Friday or something, I had eight hour session 
got a lot of the the right leg done. I'm supposed to be going back again this week to get more of the leg done because, you know, once the outline is done, I can go back for the shading. And so that's my goal. I'm saying by the end of the summer, I don't know if it's really realistic, but I want to have both leg sleeves completed by the end of the summer. So I'm on my way. You know, Jose and I are going to need to see you in shorts. Like, oh, never absolutely. Happens. Listen, I will be in those, what do they call them? The banana hammocks? Because <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about it. <laughs> I was like, what is that? <laughs> so you can see, because they come all the way up my thigh. So I need to show them off and I can't have anything blocking. So the Speedos are the only things that will give me the proper, you know, coverage that I need to not have the naughty bitch showing. But allow or both like of my legs to be in. Nike jogger yes, shorts. Yes, 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 yes. So that's that's it. You know, stay tuned for more updates on the leg. As you know, I am a member of the cast of the Dads, the documentary yeah. movie of six fathers who went to the woods to talk about their gender nonconforming and transgender children. And we had a meeting with our director, the amazing Lucina Fisher to talk about Netflix and the next steps. So apparently word on the street is that the movie will be released in the fall, maybe September. And we are talking like, you know, what's the press junket going to look like? You know, what are the release activities going to look like? What is the next iteration of the dads? Because everyone is on the same page that this is just a teaser this little 10 minute thing that we did is just a teaser and so there may be a full-length movie where they follow each of us in our respective hometowns with our families there may be like a dad's reunion where we go to another you know fishing or hunting spot and we talk about what's happening in the year plus since we've met last there is like a whole nother like queer eye for the straight guy featuring the dads kind of programming so there's all kinds of thoughts going into it. Apparently, Lucina's already pitched them something that they're interested in. So we don't know what this next iteration is like, but we do know that at the very least, in the fall, the dads will be released and we will be doing some sort of promotional something with that, whether it's talking to press or actually getting in front of cameras, who knows, but it's coming. Super exciting. I learned more about the possibilities from you than I did from my own spouse. Come on. Talk to me. You need to talk to me. All, right? <laughs> All of y'all, Rachel, Mariko, everybody needs to talk to me. I will give you all the information. All right. Yeah, the only I've person who probably me. knows more is, or as much as I do, is probably Wayne, since it's like his idea. So, you know, maybe he has more information than I do. But I his mean, wife may not know. When are y'all going to be besties? I'm waiting for that moment. It's happening. It's happening. Don't worry. D Wade. D-Wade and I, we are going to be like this. Trust and believe, all right? I have already spoken it into the universe, and so it's going to come to fruition. I really want to be besties with Gabrielle Union, so I'm down for this. Yo, and Gabrielle Union is doing the damn thing, so let's 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 not let's not forget her as we talk about this family. Um, so I told you last week that I was feeling some kind of way because I talked to my mom about taking um, the kids to Nigeria, and she was just like, "Yeah, I don't think you should you should do it." And so I said, you know, kids, talk to grandma. She said that she doesn't think it would be a good idea for you to go to the village. And they're like, well, we don't have to go to the village. Problem solved. Okay. So we can just go to Nigeria because it's only in the village that anybody has any issue because they are the only people who know anything about anything. But everywhere else, 
he's just an anonymous dude. And so they're like, yeah, we want to go to Nigeria. We're going to have a good time. We don't need to go to the village. And I was just like, I'm down with y'all. So trip is on, um, pick the dates, got the tickets. So 2024, January, we're out of here. 10 glorious days of chilling in Niger. So looking forward to that. I mean, pitch for you. You should tell Lucina. I like that. Talk about this, this like really like document, like document, like how you can't go to the village. Document the ways in which the harms of anti-trans sentiment is so wide sweeping that here's another layer to intersectionality. I love it. I'm going to give you executive production credit if in fact she picks up that idea. Tell her she's I'm serious. I'm serious. No, I, I like it. I, I think it's a great idea. And yet we have until January to actually put something together. So, hey, beautiful not a bad footage idea. Of, you, of Grandma and Hobbs. Like, oh, I see it. I, be, yes. I feel it. I want to watch yes. it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, final thing, and we're going to get to today's topics, but I definitely wanted to talk to you about this documentary on HBO that I watched called The Stroll. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it is uh, a documentary about the history of New York's uh, meatpacking district. And it's told from the point of view of several black and brown transgender sex workers who lived and worked there. And they really talk about the violence, the, the corrupt policing and the gentrification that really led to the movement for transgender rights in New York and across the country. And it's really, really poignant to see the, the, the footage that was taken. And this is like late 60s, early 70s, into the 80s. Like they have footage of Sonia Rivera. Like it, they go back in the day and it's it was hard to watch. I, I can't lie. It, it was hard to watch, but it was really enlightening because at the end, the women that they talked to a woman who survived that time of sex work and of, of brutalization, of targeting, of just a lot of the violence and degradation that they had to suffer to survive. And these are stories that most people don't know. Most people don't recognize what it is to be a sex worker and why a lot of young Black and brown people turn to sex work because their families didn't accept them and threw them out and put them out in the street and they had no place to be. Sylvia Rivera was 10 years old when they were kicked out of their home, 10 years old. And I know people in my life, trans women in my life who were houseless at 10 and forced into sex work. I can't imagine that for any child. Imagine just, just, and it's so funny because when, when, you know, when I met Lucina and she was talking about mama Gloria and mama Gloria's finishing school, and who came to Mama's Glor Glorious fish Finishing School were all these unhoused, young, black and brown trans people mm -hmm. who didn't have any other place to go and who didn't have a mother figure like Mama Gloria to take them in and to give them guidance and to give them support and to give them, you know, three hots in a cot. Like they didn't have any of that. And so it's just it's just one of those like I. I I watch these things because I want to disabuse myself of, of any ignorance to what trans people 
many trans people in this country have experienced. And it's not to say that this is the exclusive experience of trans people, but it is the experience of people that are even more marginalized and vulnerable than our children necessarily. And so it's important yeah. to have that lens and to be able to kind of not look away at no. the realities of life. And when we, when the right tries to say that we're child abusers, the people who would allow their 10 year olds off into the world with no protection, those are the real monsters. So you want to know who the real monsters are? The Johns uh. that are going down to the meatpacking district and soliciting their services from children. And then, you know, yeah. stiffing them, beating them, calling the cops on them, kidnapping them. There were police officers who were patronizing the same people that they were then arresting. Like mm -hmm. the hypocrisy of it all is just one of the things that just galls me. It really does. So the stroll is in my queue. I have not started it. And it's because, you know, it felt like it was going to be so heavy. So I'm going to have to watch it on a quiet night. It it's heavy. Makes me so angry. But it's also empowering because it's it's told from it's told from the perspective of women who made it through that time. And because a lot of them didn't and they talk about it, but it's told from a very empowering perspective for someone who says, I don't want to forget this history. And I want the story to be told for the other women who didn't make it so that their struggles so that their story isn't lost. So, so definitely, definitely make the time. I, I'll share this quickly, but uh, one of my really, really good friends since college, um, one of my sorority sisters, uh, when I first told her what we were experiencing with Daniel early on, I mean, you're talking like 2015, 2014, 2015, she was so supportive. And we were on a drive to go see Florence and the Machine in Phoenix. So we had like two hours to be together. And, um, you know, I was sharing with her like about how we weren't talking to family, all this stuff. And I was, I told her, I'm, you didn't judge me. And she, I can share this story. She's allowed me to, I've shared it before, but, uh, she, she told me about her Thea Sable, who, uh, was biracial, right? She's, uh, black skin, um, trans woman in the eighties who was murdered, right? Was forced to live in, at the margins, um, you know, more than likely was a sex worker because there were, there was no real work. Right. Um, and you, no one ever solved her murder. And she, she, she told me, I think about my Thea all the time. And I, I see Daniel and I think what, how different would her life be had my Nana just supported her. Right. If our family had just been there for her. And I promised her that day that I would carry Sable forward in everything that I did. And I think about Sable all the time. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking. And I think that's, that's another reason why, I mean, I've met so many, I've been in proximity to so many incredible activists who have had to live through this level of violence and abuse. And I, I can't imagine right? Like, that's my privilege. Like, I can't even imagine pushing forward. And so, you know, I'm glad that you saw 
that silver lining of empowerment of, uh, but I wish the world were different, right? Like it yeah. just, it's so upsetting. Yeah. Woo. That was a yeah. lot. That was a lot, but l- let's, let's, it's let's transition. Topic. Let's transition into today's topic and talk about what's happening in the rest of the world. Let's do it. All right. So right-wing media is losing their shit over the new Barbie movie. Did you watch it? I haven't. I haven't watched it yet, but I have to because I, I just want to add more money to the Barbie coffers and make the, the 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 snowflake members of the right even more angry when it does well. And apparently it and Oppenheimer, I'm a little conflicted, but it and Oppenheimer had a blowout weekend, opening weekend. So I read this really great opinion piece about how Oppenheimer and Barbie are kind of one in the same. It was like the 1950s was the, you know, or 40s was like the birth of the nuclear bomb. And then you see like plastics coming into play and how like it's the reason why we are where we are today. When you talk about like, you know, nuclear war proliferation and, mm-hmm. and like climate change, you know, climate be like being as where we are with all the plastics that are just like harming our earth. So it was a really fascinating piece, but I watched Barbie and I just want to say there was a lot of queer baiting because it wasn't that queer, but it was great. And I laughed and I cried and my boyfriend, Ryan Gosling was in it. You know that, (laughs) um, it was funny and it was sweet. And I was like, why y'all mad? They just wanted a reason to be mad. They just wanted a reason to be mad because at the end of the day, it's a movie for children. And if you know anything about Hollywood, about Hollywood studios, all children movies are made by adults. And so that there's a little bit of adult themes in them very often, sometimes veiled, sometimes not so much. But at the end of the day, they're still trying to appeal to a very young audience. So if you're getting your panties up in a bunch over a movie made for kids, then maybe you really should reassess why you're so upset. They're wild. And I love all the angry tweets, like eh, people losing their minds. Yeah, they're stupid. They're stupid and they have nothing better to do with their time. And so we're just going to laugh at them. All right. So Ryan Gosling did an amazing job. I mean, watch it. You're going to giggle. You're going to be like, what the fuck? Why are these people so mad? I'll probably wait for it to come on to cable. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to go to theaters for it, but you know, I will watch it and I will opine post watching. Um, But you know, like that, that was light and that was fun and that was cute. But governor, Yunkin in Virginia has been rolling back policies for transgender students in the States. And I am like at wit's end with this dude. Listeners, listeners, parents of trans people understand that parental rights is a dog whistle used when school, when public schools were desegregated and it is a dog whistle and an opening for racism and fascism when they talk when they use it against trans people today. That's all I gotta say. And just for folks who don't know what we're talking about, before Governor Yunkin rolled back the policies for transgender students, essentially, schools are safe places for trans people. Trans people can share their identities, they can share their names, they can share their pronouns with teachers, and teachers are not required to disclose that to parents. Students can use bathrooms that comport with the genders that they see for themselves. Students can participate 
on sports teams that align with their gender. These policies in Virginia are being rolled back under the guise of parental rights. And, and that's also, nonsense. And I want to say pre-2015, that wasn't the case. So those freedoms came through lawsuits and pain and suffering of trans youth and their families putting themselves on the line or to fight against inequality. So like, it hasn't been forever. We're talking about like a window of seven years. Of but it's just like affirmative action being rolled back because oh. we cannot have race-based preferences. That violates equal, shut up. Just shut your freaking mouths because you cannot take the historical context that underpins the reason these laws came into being and use them as the basis for why they can no longer be in place. That's that utter and complete nonsense. But now I'm getting off topic and I don't want to get upset. So we're just going to keep moving and talk about something else that's going to anger you. <laughs> like Twitter claiming a reduction in hate speech on its platform ever since Elon fuck took over. But they live in alternate, like, non-factual realities. All the experts disagree. Anyone else who's been tracking hate speech on the platform has been like, what shit are you smoking? And can I have some? I mean, I want, I like, how do you wake up in the morning and just, like, ignore facts? Well, <laughs> if you, uh, if you ask Kellyanne Conway. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. <laughs> I like walked right into that one. I was like, how do you live that life? That's how. On you. That's how. They're all alternative facts. For every point, there's a counterpoint. Lisette, I have this Google Alerts filter that's turned on and it just tracks certain things. And one of the things is just like, you know, uh, transgender women. And somehow I got into this site called something like the Patriot or the new Patriot. And in the new Patriot, it gives you tips on how to argue with people on the left. All right. When you went into far right. I internet. didn't know what you it didn't was. know about the Patriot. Oh my goodness. So, so I go in and it's got five tips on winning an argument with somebody on the left about transgender people. And the first one was like, don't use the term gender affirming care. Call it what it is. Call it double mastectomy. Call it vagioplasty. Call it phalloplasty. But it was like, use the medical terms and don't soften it by calling it gender affirming care. Oh my God. I can't even remember what they are, but it's like they have a whole set of like tips on how you can be an absolute douchebag in an argument. I am telling you, this is where the right beats us every time. They arm everyone with messaging. Yeah, I it's was surprised. Literally, where they beat us all the time. I mean, I'm I'm not because I look up this. I'm like immersed in all of this, especially because of we're always fighting anti-trans legislation. You have to know what's happening on the on the right, and so there are packets that you can go online and get about how to talk about parental rights how to start your own movement in your local area like they feed people with such ease the how-to yeah actually you know and they actually just did like heritage just did a whole conference i shared it in my stories i'll send it to you about like if they win 2024 they already have 
like a rollout strategy plan for how to educate people on like literally removing our rights even further. It's insane. And this is where I wish, like sometimes I wish I just didn't fucking know because life would be less terrifying. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. And, and, you know, since we're going down this horrible path, did you hear about the, the cis woman who was killed by a man who thought she was trans? A Michelle Peacock was killed by a Tommy Earl in Indiana because Earl thought Peacock was a man acting like a woman. And so he killed her. Stephen, when I read that, I was like horrified because black women have experienced have been experiencing violence since the beginning of this country. And now now because of the hate that they've created against trans people, it's not even safe to be a cis black woman in this world, right? Let alone be a, like a trans black woman in the world. Like violence is such a white supremacist tool and people refuse to acknowledge that. There was another incident in Oregon where a cisgender man was killed defending a transgender colleague. Colin Smith was killed by Renique Jackson after being confronted about touching their colleague when he was stabbed repeatedly. No, it's just heartbreaking. I don't even, it's like a parent's worst nightmare. And and the problem with both of these two stories is that the hysteria around trans people has reached a crescendo where cisgender people are now being caught up in this trans panic. This individual killed this woman because he thought that she was a man pretending to be a woman. This was just a regular black woman living her life. That this man felt that he had the right to kill her because he thought she was trans. You know, Ronique Jackson killed Colin Smith because he felt like he had the right to touch this transgender colleague of Colin's and was so incensed that someone would defend her that he killed them. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And and when we say that this hateful rhetoric towards trans people has these dire consequences, people don't get it because it's been, for the most part, constrained to trans people and their families. And now it's bleeding out to cisgender people and their families. Are people going to start paying attention now? Are they going to start doing things differently now? Are they going to recognize that having all this vitriol and hatred towards one group of people has dire consequences for us all or is it just business as usual it sounds like business as usual because it hasn't even really hit the news right it was just like quietly rolled out the outrage i didn't even see outrage <laughs> online yeah. truly yeah and it's just i don't have words for it it's yeah it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But enough about the happenings in the world. Let's get to today's guest, shall we? Let's do it. I feel like we are going to have a banging conversation with our guest today. Roberto Alabreu is an assistant professor of counseling psychology and the director of the Collective Healing and Empowering Voices through research and engagement in the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida. He is also an affiliate faculty in in Center for Latin American Studies and the Center for Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Research at UF. His research explores the ways in which marginalized communities resist systemic oppression and promote bienestar colectivo. 
Roberto's work has made significant contributions in two areas, intersection of Latinx, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth and their families and communities, and transgender and gender diverse youth and their families and communities. Roberto's work is guided by social justice values, such as in-person interactions, growth, resilience, and resistance. His work can be found in top-tier academic journals, as well as featured in news outlets such as NBC News and BuzzFeed. Everyone, please welcome Roberto Abreu to our show. I'm so Yay! happy to be here. Thank you so much for having it. I am excited for this conversation to be in community with two amazing folks who are doing great work. So I look forward to this time together. Ah, thank you. We're so happy to have you here. So, Roberto, the work that you're doing is is really incredibly important. I just, when Lucette first raised you as a potential guest on our show and sent me your bio, I was just like, oh my goodness, this dude is really doing some serious, serious critical work considering where we are as a country. But I really want to know what drew you to looking at systemic oppression through an academic lens? Like, why was that important to you? Yes, well, thank you for the question, yes. And um, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, like, um, for good reasons, a lot of times, academic would get this like rep of like, you're just in the ivory tower doing this work and nobody can relate to it, right? And I think a lot of times that it feels like that. What I think my work does and where I like to make, I guess, you know, a contribution is to um, be able to, I don't know, bring to light and be in community with folks and kind of like bridging that academic and community piece, right? But why did, why this work, right? I think before I was an academic, before I was a doctor student, before I did discover research, I've always been really fascinated in all the ways that fascinated could describe, right? By family interactions with their LGBTQ children, right? Like a Latino, you know what I'm saying? like coming out, like my coming out was so, I could see how, how my parents reacted, you know, which were very positive in many ways. And some, in some other ways, they struggled on their learning, you know, and the way my, my colleagues' parents react to them. So this fascination was like, why are my parents reacting? Why, why are parents reacting this other, this way? I can tell that Latino parents are reacting in a, in, in, you know, Latinx parents are reacting in a certain way that other parents are not. Where's all this is coming from? I could also see that my parents were struggling. So I felt bad for them, but I felt bad for me. It's like, what is, so I've always been really intrigued, moved, and um, it, it, it really nurtures my soul to try to understand how parents and families and their LGBTQ child and family members react to each other and build relationships with each other. I'm so glad that you started off with this because Stephen has heard a little bit, but you all took a nugget of like things that I was seeing and hearing in different parent spaces that I was facilitating and running and are studying that grief model that we know is harmful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which you, you allude to it right now. Like you were sad for your parents, you were sad for yourself. And like the, those lived impacts, 
I I think what I found fascinating about the work that you do and the and the conversations you and I have engaged in in the past is also like when we're talking about progress when we speak to parents, because often the narrative around LGBTQIA youth is how do we convince their Christian family counterparts? And the reality is for BIPOC families, that may not be the case. And our families actually understand marginalization. They understand migration. They Mm -hmm. understand like all these like systemic hardships. They've they've lived through them and told us we can have a better life. They've sacrificed for Mm -hmm. us. And so in that understanding, do they come to a place faster, right? Like, can they come to a place if you connect those systemic challenges with that of their child, right? Does empathy Mm -hmm. kick in faster? And I'm wondering what you have seen, especially in Florida, in this moment with families, are families engaging more quickly because they're seeing government kind of attack everyone at one time? What what are you seeing on the ground? Yeah, I love the question for many reasons, but it's like, okay, that question that you asked me is literally what I want to ground my entire life work on. Like, what is happening with this parents, right? So Same. I'll tell you a little bit, yes. So I'll tell you a little bit, and um, I think it's nuance, right? Like most things, right? I think one of those nuances pieces, what you're saying, let's say, about this all different systems of oppression interacting with each other, right? What I've seen with Latinx folks, like the the immigration story, you know, the American dream story, the racial socialization, the, uh, you you know, saying all documentation, all these things that interact, right? One of the things, and I think you're also correct about this harmful narrative that of like a grief of parents, right? And I, what I have seen, especially with Latinx parents that I have talked to, that, that I've done interviews with, I've collected data, you know, and talked to, is that for parents of color, while for white parents, it might be that this is the very first time that they're learning about oppression, that the world is not going to be unfair to their child, Parents of color, the, the, the Latinx parents I've talked to, they've known this for a while for another reason. For, for you know, they know that their child is like lose your accent, and they're gonna be discriminated in all these pieces, right? It's almost like a reaction of like, oh my goodness, why would you do this to yourself? Why would you quote unquote choose to do this to yourself? Because I am so concerned about this. So that narrative is very different that I have seen with Latinx parents, right? The other piece too is that. There, there's always, there, there's often a need to put Latinx culture and cultural values and cultural pieces in direct opposition with queer and trans identities. And what I've seen, and, and it's like, well, you know, Latino men are so machista and that's the reason why they are said they do not accept their kids. It's like, well, wait a minute, that is, that is, that, that, that could be true. Right. And it's true for a lot of folks. Right. But I've also talked to fathers and folks in a fatherly role who are extremely accepting, who are actually able to reframe some of the more negative cultural pieces on strict gender norms to accept their child. So I I love that my work, um, I'm still doing, like I say, my life work is like trying to put in conversation those pieces. And actually, if I can if Latinx parents, Latino parents can see the, um, how those cultural pieces actually can help them get to a faster place of acceptance. Like they have an upper hand here. They have this rich cultural pieces that they can use. And some of parents, 
um, some of those Latinx parents are used in them, you know what I'm saying, like family, the role of mothers within, within the culture, right? To use it in a way to bring in queer and trans folk instead of putting them in opposition to that. So to directly answer your question, do, do, does it help every parent move faster to acceptance? I'm not sure. I think some parents, it does. I, th I think the parents were able to see those connections, but because one of the investments of systemic oppression is to keep people oppressed and keep people from different groups against each other, like, oh, see, you will be fine if those immigrants didn't take your job. You will be fine if those queer people were not so immoral. You will be fine. And actually, None of us are fine, but there are parents that I've talked to that are able to see through that. With some of the parents are more like a critical conscious racing, you know, and I think that's where the, where the work is, creating that critical consciousness around how is it that all these things are actually connected. Accepting your child, it is a form of, of, of like resisting oppression, right? Loving your trans child, it is a form of resistance. It's so funny that you said, why would you choose this? Mm -hmm. It's literally the thing my dad told me when mm -hmm. I when I came out to him for Daniel. He said, why are you making it harder? And yeah. at the time, I was like in my feels, like I had just come out to a bunch of family members for my kid. And I was like, you got to go. Like, I'm not having this conversation with you. I was really <laughs> angry with him. But it took me a minute mm -hmm. to like sit in it and recognize that what he was saying was, it's already hard for us. I mean, it's a conversation he had from with me early on was like, you have to be better, speak better, have an education that you can tell people that you have to give you some sort of boost in their idea of you, right? My dad never graduated from high school. He's a small business owner. There were ways in which he didn't recognize he was utilizing assimilation, yeah. right? And pushing assimilation to, to carve out some some a life for himself and his family, right? Mm -hmm. And so it took me a minute to think about it in the sense that like, okay, really what he's telling me is that he's worried and scared because it's already hard. Yeah. And I have to be okay with him feeling that. But then also, how do I, you know, that's been the crux, especially when I'm facilitating groups. How do I connect the dots with people? I think the thing that I found fascinating was a conversation we had in one of the groups that I was facilitating um, where a parent said, my child can't have, can't be transphobic, they're trans. And I had to like share it, my own internalized racism on like, it's not racism, colorism, right? Like I've always hated my dark elbows, my dark knees, like the parts of my skin that are highly pigmented that I would see white women and they didn't have that hyperpigmentation, mm -hmm. right? Like their skin was like lovely or what we were told standards of beauty were. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I had to like literally deconstruct that self internalized self color, like hatred of my skin color, of my hyperpigmentation of ideas of beauty that because I felt less than because I never saw myself represented in this country when you mm -hmm. looked at campaigns. And so that was a really fascinating conversation for me to have with these families yeah. who had zero understanding that their children could have internalized transphobia because society. And it's when we started having those, I, I was really excited because we could have a deeper conversation of 
what does grief mean? Because when you say, when you use certain words, the blame always then hits on the child and mm -hmm. their gender identity instead of saying, Lisette isn't a bad person for having internalized colorism. Society imposed those standards on Lisette. And it must have been traumatic to have to deconstruct that in her mind to, to lead to self-love. It's not our children, right? Like, it's not their fault. And we have to have conversations where we challenge ourselves to say, how do we reframe this? It's not really grief. What we're sad about is that we're going to be marginalized and vilified for having trans youth. This is just my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. Really, what we're sad about is that society is going to put consequences on my life for choosing to support my child. So there will be consequences and constraints. Yeah. I may lose, I may lose family. I may lose friends. People will judge my parenting. I mean, that was something I worried about. And I, I actually said it once in testimony. It was for the medical ban. I said, I really didn't want people to think I had Munchausen by proxy or whatever, because that's what you would hear <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And I was like, people are going to judge my parenting if I support my child. And they're going to say that I'm trying to make, it. I actually had a friend who I'm not friends with anymore, say that I made Daniel transgender so I could be a victim. You know, these are things that our parents are navigating. And, you know, I was in the shower today and I was like, we get a lot of applause for doing the bare minimum. And often we center ourselves <laughs> in the journey. And really the reason why we're like, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to do, but really it came at the expense of our children pushing us for yeah. years so that they could shine brightly. Yeah. You know what I mean? It came yes. at the expense of someone else telling us over and over again that they could not exist in the world in which we defined them yeah. and they couldn't define themselves. And so like, I think about this all the time. And Is now there I'm a question in here, Lisette? There isn't. I just, oh my these goodness. are conversations I have with Roberto. I'm so sorry. But like, no, I mean, I'm sure you have these mind dumps. So I will lead it into a question. These are my mind dumps when I'm showering or thinking about how to facilitate or yeah. thinking about where I want to lead the conversation. What are like three of them for you that you're just like, oh, this is the thing I think about all the time? Yes. Yes, thank you for sharing that. So I'll share something uh, and then I'll answer directly a question, uh, uh, something related to this, right? Yes, actually, a lot of the work that I'm interested in doing, a lot of the work that I've done, a lot of people focus on the um, on the youth or the LGBT person themselves, right? And that's important, right? I And I do some of that as well, some of that work, but where my heart is and where the core of my work is, uh, the folks I wanna work with are parents and families themselves and try to understand, right? Because there is a different narrative here that I want to understand for all the reasons that you mentioned, said, right? About the, the grief narrative and all those pieces, right? Like, I really want to understand, like, what is happening with this parent? Because the other piece is like, parents are not talking to their child and vice versa. So it's not to invalidate the other person's feelings, right? If you say something that is offensive to your child, that should be addressed and you should be held accountable to that. And there's tons, I'll speak from itself, of, of misconceptions I had about what my parents were thinking that through my work with parents, we laughed in the parents like, oh, I wonder if my parents were actually thinking that other way that I had no idea about. So, and that is also just to name it a function also of the oppressor and the oppre to to keep us literally from talking to our kids 
you know, and to each, I mean, to each other, period, including parents talking to their kids about how they feel, who they are, because the oppressive narrative is so strong that we go to that, we, we enact that, we enact those um, experiences of trauma that we've had and we continue to have, right? So with that said, uh, questions that I have are, are um, or things that I think about, especially from the parents' perspective is like, how is it, I don't, I don't have the answer to this, like I said, I think it's my life work, right? What is it gonna take for parents to understand that piece, that systemic piece that you were talking about, that dismantling and reframing that narrative, right? Because it is hard. What, what would it take for a parent to say, like for example, when parents say, I'm sad, I'm all these things, I, I actually believe it. I actually believe it, but one, you need to communicate that to your child. Is that healthy for your child for you to communicate it that way? It's like, like I really want you to work on those feelings, but it might not have to be in front of your kid. Like, I think you should absolutely work on those feelings. I think it it, it is probably healthy in the long run for your child as well for you to work through those feelings, but does it have to be in a way that further makes your child feel guilty? for being who they are. I think coming from a place of love and caring, I think it's important. I think when we tell parents, like, see what you've done to your child, I don't know that that helps, but I do think parents should be accountable, you know what I'm saying, for the narrative that they put up or or not, you know what I'm saying? So I wonder about that. How is it that we communicate that to parents? Like, of course you feel sad. You've lived in a world that have told you that, queer and trans kids and people are not normal, quote unquote, normal. The, this is something to be fixed. This is something to run away from. If you're a good parent, you wouldn't let this happen. So of course you feel that way. It makes sense when you feel that way. Like I believe when you feel that way. And how do we deconstruct that and think about it and talk about it in a way that does not further alienate your child, your relationship with your child, and it actually starts to create some healing to, between you and your child and between you and the community and this community. I'm with you. I'm like, let's blame the oppressor, not your child. Let's talk <laughs> it, about that why you're Let's sad. blame the oppressor. So so <laughs> it's interesting because before we, you know, we started um, the podcast, before Lucette joined, you and I were talking about Mm-hmm. Like what it was like to be a professor studying systemic racism and systemic issues in a place that is currently and has been for some time one of the most repressive places to live in this country. And I'm talking about Florida. And you mm-hmm. studied it in Tennessee and you studied in Kentucky. And you've been in places where you've seen these yeah. systemic issues crop up time and time again, impacting the most vulnerable members of society. And not only are you kind of a witness to this, you've actually been personally impacted by the way in which these policies in states like Florida are affecting families. What is that like to be an academic who can see what's happening and Mm -hmm. and is trying to help educate other people, but as an individual is personally being impacted by the way these policies are actually uh, injuring families. What is that like? Oh my God. Uh, do we have three hours? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't know if we do, but, but making a comment that a colleague of mine said the other day, it's like, oh my goodness, 
how does it feel to be like um what is it like a scholar activist on the front line and i'm like okay, I don't think I've ever seen myself as such, but you're right, by default, my goal of being an academic and understanding family was, was like for families to come together and understand each other. And I knew the systemic oppression was happening, but when I was said, I was like, well, things are getting better so we can move to a place of like more healing. And this is great. I can focus with families. And I was like, so I I never seen myself as like this radical researcher activist by default where I am on the work that I do. I don't know that I, I don't think that I sought out to be a radical research activist, but I'm positioning there just by the work that I do. So I'll give you some examples of things that have happened and then my analysis and observations that I have had about that. It's a, the, the largest national study with parents of trans youth, almost immediately after we released the survey, we started to get like pretty aggressive emails by very well-organized anti-trans organizations. I mean, and I'm not talking about people saying like, you're a bad person. Like, okay, we've heard that before. Like I've been told that many times. I'm talking about very well-organized emails, targeted emails that were sent to higher ups in both our universities, the governor's office. Long story short, many, many things happened in between. There was an investigation of my IRB. There were, there were com- a lot of conversations happening, right, with my university. And um, universities are very political in nature, right? Some people, I, can, I cannot say that some people were very supportive. Some people were not. Some people were like, well, this is what it is, type of thing. So that has happened. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I forgot the actual number, but the bill that passed that we cannot teach things like white supremacy or when I mentioned those things, whatever. My syllabus got reported two times. So here I, have, here I am having for, for mentioning things like white supremacy or like heterosexism and, you know, for mentioning systems of oppression in my syllabus. And uh, here I am having more meetings with people at the university about why do I do that? I'm like, you know, not to be an asshole, but oh, I don't know if I can say that, but not, not to be rude, but, you know, but, um, and I'm not a person who pulls around or anything, but like you hire me to do this job and you have a PhD in this area. So I don't know what the answer to your question is other than I have the expertise to do this that you hire me to do. Like I- I'm confused about these questions, you know? So anyways, any, anything through it all. So we stick with a survey. We, we stick with the survey, right? We, we, we took precautions and we put some things in place. I stick with my syllabus and I will continue to stick with my syllabus and the things that I teach. Because part of it is the scare tactic. And then part of it is also the very uh, tangible things that they're putting in place. Here is my analysis on some, on some observations that I've had. One of the sad but also refreshing things uh, that I've been taking notes of, little, little notes that have a a book of things that happened and here and there and things like, like you know, you like how being in this meeting made me feel or whatever. I've seen a shift in academics and shift and disappoint and then disappointing shift in people who I thought did care about the work, right? Who it's not cool to do the work anymore. They're not doing it, right? And I want to be mindful about saying this. There are some people who could really lose a lot. But so I could understand why some people are like, shit, maybe just let me tone it down a little bit because they might be queer and trans themselves, a person of color. But I'm talking to people who 
or allies or whatever they call themselves are now saying things like, maybe we shouldn't use the word diversity anymore in our syllabus. Maybe we shouldn't say these things anymore. And it's like, I'm watching, uh, many of us are watching and it's like, okay, I can see who you are. I can see who you are. I can see who you are and I can see who you are. So I think if I find a silver lining, it's not a silver lining, something is like, it's giving me, I'll speak for myself, a lot of evidence and a lot of, uh, of who is actually in my corner, but not just in my corner, who is actually in the corner of like trans kids and BIPOC folks. Honestly, one of the buffers have been being close to family. Probably maybe the reason I haven't left Florida. You know, my parents are here in Florida. My husband's parents are here in Florida. And we have an eight, eight and a half, almost nine-year-old. Can I believe that? He's old, I mean, older already. But uh, so being close to family has been great. And every single day, honest to God, I think about when is the day I'm going to be called in and, and be fired, to be honest. And I think that about every single day. But, and I'll, put, I'll stop after, after this comment, is um, something that I think for myself and I love, uh, and I talk to my students about, and um, and I, I think more people should think of is because part of oppression is also to make us feel as though we're helpless, right? And that there's nothing we can do. And um, if we look at intersectionality and systems of oppression, we're all positioned in a different way in where we have lots of privilege and also oppressed identities, and they're all coming together at the same time, right? And part of it is to keep us busy without without stopping to think about what we're doing and who we are, right? So I literally, like, I love being an academic. I love teaching. I love the research that I do. I do. I honestly do. And I've thought about, well, if I get fired, I can do the, the job that I love. And then I'm like, okay, well, think of your privilege here. You have a doctorate degree. You will have a job. Can I give that up? Can I give the perfect academic job and, I, and the answer to me have been like, I will be okay with that. I will mourn some of that, but I can go somewhere else and do that. To me, it's like an, an analysis of like, let me keep on pushing because I also have privilege that other people do not have. And, and that's the reason why they're not pushing. So I will continue to push and stay here, um, at least for the moment. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think oftentimes we, we for Royal, we are silence because we're like there's this thing that we're holding on to without seeing yeah but there's this many other pieces and privilege around what you do that that could buffer and actually you should be the person talking about this right like i'm not backing down uh talking about trans kids and their family because i'm because i'm not trans uh or my kid and he you know he identifies as a cis boy that that I know of today. So I'm not backing down because of that. I actually started to do this research because I care, not because it was a trend. So I need to stay in it. And maybe I need to rethink about the way that I do it to make sure that I'm still empowering the folks that, 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 that brought me to this research to begin with. It's so interesting. I don't think that you're saying anything that we don't experience in equality spaces either, right? Like this yeah. idea that studying trans youth, I mean, 
five years ago, I spoke to a movement organization. Uh, mm -hmm. They were a, a, lawyer, a law firm that was like trans kids don't win cases. Was it five or six years ago? I'll say. Um, and, and that's different now, right? Like that's different when, when you think about the ways in which people have to, um, fundraise to be able to put, to, to engage in those level of lawsuits, right? So that these organizations are thinking what's fis fiscally responsible for them at their bottom line. And like, and then when it's trendy, all of a sudden everyone's on board and we're like, we've been, we're exhausted. We've been doing this work for years. Um, I'm glad. Thank you for showing up. But mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think for me, you know, when I joined the parent community in 20, late 2015, right? Um, 2016-ish, I code switched completely. We never talked about our immigration status. I used my white person voice. Um, I, I was told, oh, you speak so well. <laughs> I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, it was a predominantly white space, right? And then when I was asked to take over, um, you know, I did that. I was like, I'm going to be supportive of these families and blah, blah, blah. When, you know, I, I always supported Kaepernick. I was always conscious of race in this country. But the thing that moved me was watching what happened in Ferguson and mm -hmm. watching youth protests in BL, uh, you know, the BLM movement. And prior to that, you know, you, we were starting to see organizing on the ground. I was seeing organizing on the ground that felt like the world is going to implode and am I going to be my values? And sometimes I fail at them, right? Like I'm not perfect. I fuck up all the time and, and you, I feel discomfort yep. and, but I keep pushing myself, right? And I'm trying, I want to be my values every day. And there's conversations I've had with Jose, like before we, you know, our family was featured in People Magazine at a time when it was fine, right? Like we were mid pandemic, who was gonna see it really? Um, there were bigger issues in the world. Um, but I remember telling Jose, like, what if this harms our business, mm -hmm. right? And every time I've said that, Jose will, has reminded me, he says the same thing. He said, if we don't do this for Daniel, he'll be forced to do it alone as an adult. And that's our responsibility. And so like, who are we mm -hmm. in this moment when we feel afraid and we feel like we're going to lose the lives that we've wanted to build? We have the right as black and brown people in this space, we have the right to want to build a life for ourselves too. Just like white people have had a gajillion years to do for themselves and their children and to build a legacy where our children don't have to start from the bottom all over again to build a life. And yeah. so like, I allow myself space for that. And also recognize that that I'm a lot more radicalized than I thought I was accidentally just by being aware and wanting to be the value. So like if you're, what you're saying resonates. Like I didn't wake up and go, I'm going to piss people off today and be radical in my space. But at the same time, I remember being five and, be, and seeing movements and seeing people and being like, that's who I want to be, you know? But I have to ask you this because I get asked this often. How do you stay grounded in that? Because I can easily get taken over by anger. I know I do. Um, but how do you stay grounded to your intention in the work? How do you stay in a space of curiosity and love? 
and yeah. not be taken over by like the fear and the anger? What anchors you? Oh my God, I love that question. Probably multiple things, right? The two things that are come to mind is my analogy is like going into a room with like everybody talking. There's so much happening. Who's right and who's wrong? Or I find myself questioning myself. Do people have a point? And this is like, okay, take a breather. The people who share these identities and experiences are your life. Those are the people you need to listen to, okay? Those are the folks, okay? The rest is noise. There's a purpose, right? So listen to that inner voice. Listen to the folks whose experiences are being marginalized, whose experiences are being targeted. These are the folks. The folks on outside, that's noise. So that's one. And the other one, honestly, is my, is my, is my son. I think as someone who studies families in the middle of the pandemic with, uh, the, with the double pandemic, with all of the unrest, at, at least for me, I don't know about you, you too, is like, I feel very hopeless and helpless. Like there's nothing I can do. The world is so anti-Black. I probably participate on some of that, not even knowing. The world is just hates trans people, and they probably participate in some of that, not even knowing. It feels helpless. It, help, it feels hopeless. And I'm trying to be like, okay, there, I need to do more, but but what is more? And then, so my husband and I read, this is kind of like a ritual. We read a book before bedtime with Ezra, and we sing. Singing is not great, but but the book is good. <laughs> children as, and this is all children, not just my child, ask really good questions that come from really genuine places, right? Like, I think my son asks me sometimes harder questions that I try to answer with fancy statistical analysis. Because <laughs> I can do that, but this, this question is like, oh, you know, they're like simple, they're basic, but they're big. And and that keeps me grounded. It's like, okay, if I can focus on everything feels so big and so helpless and hopeless, but I can focus and make a difference here in my household. I can start here and it, it can feel like something I can do. So honestly, those interactions with my son, um, his joy, um, the way that he sees these people like you know like the other day he's like can I get uh toilet uh the rolls of toilet paper when they're done I was like yeah that's fine it's like I'm gonna make some sort of something because he's at a camp right it's like my camp director she was really sad yesterday I'm gonna make build her a doll or something something out of toilet paper I was like that is I'm gonna hold on to that kindness because that kindness exists and I always said that that has taught me more about love and care than anybody. I'm a counseling psychologist. We talk all the time about like empathy. And, and I don't think any book or therapy that I've ever done have taught me more about empathy than my child. So I so those things keep me grounded. Who is it that I'm doing the work? Not for, because people have a voice. Trans people have a voice. It's not my job to talk for trans people. And when I am in a room that trans folks are not in for me to amplify those voices. So who are the folks who I'm working with, collaborating and in solidarity with, right? Those are the voices I need to hear. The rest is noise. And honestly, my kid, my kid keeps me grounded all the time. 
that was great. That that I mean, it's it's so interesting the way these themes occur because Lisette and I have talked about just the awe and wonder of our children, mm-hmm. just the ways in which they, just in their being, they provide so much light and joy and buoyancy to what would otherwise be just heavy, heavy issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. But one of the things that I really wanted to ask you, and maybe, um, Lisa, I don't know if you have anything after this, but I I definitely wanted to end with this. What are the most discouraging and encouraging things you've learned about systemic oppression and and resistance? Oh, gosh, Jazz. So I think discouraging for me is that as I was saying a little earlier, like honestly, after marriage equality, you know, election of Obama, marriage equality, these things happen. I was like, we're going, we're going. I loved hearing like older queer and trans folks talk about their struggle that they and they appreciated it so much. I think um, and I was like, but we're in a good place, like we're moving forward, we're going here. I think discouraging, I think, it's, I think it's both discouraging and encouraging, right? Is that the way oppressive system dehumanized certain groups of people, darker skinned folks, trans folks, queer folks, obsessed with people who have uteruses. I don't think we ever rest to claim our humanity. I'm, I'm struggling nowadays to see a near future world where we don't have to explain our humanity. But I do have radical hope that we can get there, right? So that is the encouraging part that we can get there there, and we cannot take for granted the work that we need to continue to do. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but like, for example, like a lot of these conversations, like oppressors are also not very creative. It's like they keep like reusing the same things, right? I was same talking, things, same things, <laughs> all like, the same. I was talking to a co- to to a friend and, and a colleague who's like, this is from more the academic world, but translates to society. Like back in the fifties, right? Um, how mothers were being white mothers were being used to say like, I'm just afraid that my kid is going to be in an integrated classroom. And it's the same narrative now where you see mothers, mostly white mothers, to say, I'm just afraid my kid is going to be in a classroom with a trans kid. And it's like, okay, there's a blueprint here. It's not, it's not I mean, I mean it's, it's extremely oppressive, but it's like, we've heard this narrative before, so we can't dismantle it. I mean, about you're talking about the Chicano rights movement. You're talking yeah. about the Southwest. You're talking about Jim Crow. Like the bathroom is the first line of marginalization because if you can't pee in public, you can't live in public. You yep. you have you cannot dictate when you have to pee, right? Like you can't. Your body just decides. Yep. And it's so interesting. I think too, the right has become savvier in divide and conquer in bringing in these conservative Latinas to take over like Moms for Liberty, right? Like Moms for Liberty, the figurehead is a Latina. You know what I mean? Uh, Um, And so you're right. It's like, or like when people are like, but what about contagion? I was like, people in the 80s, I remember people saying like, if you hung out with gay people, you you would get it. Like that's contagion. You You know what I mean? Like you would become gay all of a sudden. I'm like, that's not how it works. Like people are who they are. And it's so 
disrespectful and it's so steeped in bigotry and people will say these things and not critically think about it at all. Yeah. And you made me think about something that I think is crucial. I don't know how we get there. I get discouraged sometimes, but I think key about, about the divide and conquer is solidarity. Whiteness is very enticing. The idea of whiteness is very enticing. And the closer we are to it via our skin tone, via our experiences, whiteness is enticing. Cisnormativity is enticing. All of these oppressive systems actually paint themselves as very good systems and it's enticing and we can all, we have all fell for it at some point and we probably will continue. So staying alert, I think is really important. And I think solidarity across, solidarity is crucial. We cannot talk about anti-queerness, we, we don't talk about anti-transness. And we cannot talk about anti-transness if we're not talking about about anti-blackness. I mean, these things have got to be connected. There's a common thread, but we're still disconnected from ourselves because it only serves these different systems and the oppressor, right? So I think solidarity is the answer and it has always been the answer. You say, I saw this point, uh, this point from Ibrahim, Ibrahim Kendi, uh, who says, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the homophobes, transphobes, and the racists are united, we have to as well, or something like that. It's like, yes, like the right has found a really good coalition. Like to give something to the right, right? Is that they are quick, they organize, and they know what they want. And many times us, the liberal to just use a a word or whatever, is we're like, well, but maybe this group doesn't fit in this group. They figured out to come together and target all of us, then we all need to come together and in solidarity and target preach. Response. Yeah. And that's preach, the hard, preach. That's really the hard work because Jesus isn't white Jesus. I'm gonna say white Jesus is an easy unifier, right? Like that's easy to utilize this idea of of, of uh, spiritual or religious, you know, dogma. Mm -hmm. And the challenge, I think, for progressives, liberals, radicals, abolitionists, Mm -hmm. is how do we create a world that is truly free and inclusive, allowing for freedom of diverse thought? Because that is that is true freedom. Right. It's like when you talk about feminism, feminism is allowing somebody to be a stay at home mom and not judging them for those choices as you do the super sexualized paradigm on the other side, right? Like these things must exist in a true free society. You are always on my list of like who I want at a dinner party. This has been amazing, an amazing, amazing conversation, Roberto. Uh, I wish we could go on and on, but we have to get to today's allies and assholes. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, (laughs) And uh, let's get to our next section. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups who are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is former NBA player, legend, and Arizonan Charles Barkley. 
Charles Barkley went off on the Rednecks who boycotted Bud Light for their support of trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. He bought a round of Bud Light for the patrons at a bar in California and said, if you're gay, God bless you. If you're trans, God bless you. And if you have a problem with them, fuck you. Charles Barkley has long been a supporter of the LGBTQ community. So this latest episode is really indicative of the kind of ally he really is. And I really just love how vocal he is. Like, Charles Barkley gives zero fucks, and I'm here for it all day. And this is why Sir Charles Barkley is our ally of the week. Yay! Yay! All right, congratulations to Charles Barkley. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week this week is CNN. CNN aired a segment last week regarding the fallout from the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney issue. And in reporting that could have aired on Fox News, CNN's national correspondent, Ryan Young, spoke to people about having LGBTQ plus issues shoved down their throat. He shared views from a grandmother about children being supposedly influenced by trans collaborations and misgendered Mulvaney during a live report. Really, CNN? You're not going to do anything about Ryan Young? We're going to just have to watch his ugly ass, crusty ass face on CNN? Still, I'm not watching that channel anymore. This is just another example of how the left and progressives are becoming all too comfortable with transphobia. That's so true. Because being LGBTQIA is not something that other people are influenced to being. There's no, no contagion. That that concept of contagion isn't real. Nope. And I see what you're saying about what's happening in progressive spaces because instead of them stepping into the breach and saying, no, we're going to combat fallacy with facts. We're going to combat opinion with truth. They're just going along to get along. And their, their reporting is substandard. Like, that's my thing. Like, you're a live reporter on CNN, supposedly one of the most reputable news outlets in the country, I dare say the world. And this is the type of reporting you're allowing on live TV? I mean, CNN's been like a New York Times for a minute. It's true. And this is why CNN is our asshole of the week. Boo. Bye. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Roberto Abreu, for spending time with us today. And of course, I want to thank my always amazing, down for whatever, co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for rocking with me today and every day. Steven, you know I got you. So I couldn't do this without you, your humor, your kindness, and thoughtfulness around how to talk about these issues. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And as usual, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye. If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to the Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org 
or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.